We continue this journey through First uh, John, and we see just how honest, how black and white the Apostle John really is. And for some of us, we like things like this, cut and dry, black and white, no middle ground, no question marks afterwards. Some of us, we almost take offense to this, right? How could you say something so harsh or so black and white? Uh, but this, again, is the disciple of love. This is the apostle of love, the disciple whom Jesus loved. We have this old man that they would carry up to the front of the church in order that he could share the word and he would share the same thing over and over again right to love one another to be obedient to God's word to be obedient to Jesus Christ and just the same message over and over again we've seen it throughout first John 3 in verse 10 it tells us in this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is he who does not love his brother. Again, we saw that there's only two groups within all mankind. Sons of God and sons of the devil. Daughters of God and daughters of the devil. There is no middle ground. There's no gray area. There's no purgatory. If you would, there's no middle adoption process or halfway or half-baked. There's nothing like that, right? Either you're saved or you're not. And then here, John, he gives it to us very simply. He says, the children of God, they live according to the Bible. They're going to practice righteousness. They're going to be obedient to God's word. And they're going to have a love for other Christians. And again, as we go through this this morning, I hope you want to be in heaven for all of eternity and not in hell for all of eternity. So we should be asking ourselves, am I truly a son or daughter of God or not? And now if we're a son or daughter of God, we're going to live according to the Bible and we're going to have a love for other Christians. Loving people and being obedient to the Bible, it does not save us. However, some of us, we sort of like a laundry list, right? We just say, give me a list. Tell me what you want to do so I can knock it out. And yet our heart might not be in it, right? I know none of the guys here, when you ask that special girl to marry you and maybe she had a couple question marks and you just said, tell me what you want, right? Just give me the list of things you need me to do. Maybe that father-in-law, you just said, hey, tell me the things you want me to do so I could just knock them out and get them out of the way. That doesn't work with the Lord. We are saved only through faith. Only by believing that Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus is the only way to heaven. He's the Son of God. And now believing that truth and living that truth out, that's what saves us. However, this is the byproduct of being saved. This is the evidence that we can look to within our own lives, that we can have assurance. We'll look at that next Sunday, that we can have the assurance, the hope, the joy, the trust that I truly am saved. And now he's going to dive in a little bit deeper into this in these next few verses. And simply put, there's going to be a separation. The children of the devil, they're characterized by hate and by murder. And the children of God, they are characterized by love and self-sacrifice and that's the great dividing line between us and the rest of the world are we defined by hate and murder or by love and self-sacrifice he starts off in verse 11 he says for this is the message that you heard from the beginning that we should love one another and again love everybody talks about love right half of the movies they're all about love Every song, it's about love, right? How many poems are about love? So much of life is all about love. But here he's not talking about that. He's not talking about what is love, baby don't hurt me, right? He's not talking about looking for love in all the wrong places. That's not what he's talking about here. He's going to give us here the biblical definition of love. And that's the only definition that we should look to. That's the only definition that we should adopt into our own lives. It's not what... The world says it's the message that we have heard from the beginning. And this message within Christianity, it has not changed. We are to live in a habitual lifestyle of being obedient to God. And we are to live in a, a habitual lifestyle of loving one another. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 7, John emphasized this earlier. 1 John 2, verse 7, he says, Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. He's saying, guys, this is nothing new. 
You know this. We've heard this from the beginning. We're just not being obedient to it. When was the first time they heard this? In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. You can just write it down. This is where God, he tells the nation of Israel. He tells them, you shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudges against the children of your people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So again, since Leviticus, they've been told this same mindset. Hey, love your neighbor as yourself. You should not be looking to take out vengeance. You should not be bearing any grudges. But instead, you should be loving your neighbor as yourself. We can turn to John chapter 13. And here Jesus, he reminds the disciples and he ups the ante of what the commandment is for us as believers, as those who are heaven bound, as those who are sons and daughters of God. John chapter 13, if you would turn there with me, in verse 34 and 35. And there Jesus, he tells his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Again, Jesus, he ups the ante. It's not just about loving your neighbor as yourself, but now we are to love others as Jesus has loved us. Again, that's, that's heavy. That's difficult for most of us, right? It's difficult for all of us. We don't possess this sacrificial type of love. But this is what we're commanded to do as his disciples. Paul would tell the church of Galatia in Galatians chapter 5 verse 14 that all the law is fulfilled in one word even in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Again, family, how are you doing in the realm of love, right? How is your love towards one another? Again, love, it's given many definitions in the day and age we live in, right? The world, it's pumping out so many lies, right? Love is love, and the end love wins. Changing words, changing vocabulary, right? Husband is not husband, wife is not wife, man is not man, woman is not woman. Breastfeeding is not breastfeeding, right? They're changing definitions and terms all the time. That's why we as believers, we need to go back to the Bible and say, Lord, what's your definition of love? And John, he's going to give us two things. He's going to give us a compare and a contrast. He's going to give us an example of how not to love in the next verse in verse 12. And then he's going to give us an example of how we should be loving in verse 16. So first, how we should not love. In verse 12, it says, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother, why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Let's turn to the book of Genesis chapter 4. Sometimes we can just assume everybody knows about Cain and Abel or remembers everything with Cain and Abel. But let's just turn there. Genesis chapter 4. I'll bring you up to speed on the story in case you forget, right? Adam and Eve, they're put into the garden, a perfect garden. All they have to do is take care of the garden and name the animals. All The only thing they should not do is eat a fruit of one specific tree. They can do anything in the world that they want, except not eat of that one specific tree. And even in this, when sin is conceived into this world, there's a great example of how not to love. Right? Timothy tells us that Eve, she was truly deceived by the enemy. When Eve, she took of the fruit, she was deceived. The enemy tricked her. But Adam knew exactly what he was doing. Adam had stated in his heart that it was better to continue in this relationship with Eve and sin than to stand with God and to see what happens with him and Eve. And we need to be careful with that. Some of us think that it's more important, it's more loving to continue in sin with someone and, in a sense, turn our back on God and be disobedient to God. We think that somehow that's love and that's not loving whatsoever. True love, it comes from obedience to the Lord. True love, right, as Joshua said, right, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that's the way we should be loving. But Eve, she's deceived by the serpent. Adam's not. Adam chooses to sin. Adam chooses to be with Eve instead of being obedient to God's commands. And after they get busted, right, how did sin come into this world? By two people eating a fruit salad, right? Can you believe that? Of all the ways for sin to come into this world and wreck everything and destroy everything, it's 
by eating fruit. It's kind of ridiculous, right? But perfect fellowship with God here is broken because they were disobedient to God. God gave them a command. God gave the law, and they performed lawlessness. They went against God's law. So God, in wanting to keep this fellowship with Adam and Eve, he made for them garments of skin. Which really what that's telling us is God reveals to them, how can we keep this fellowship and relationship together? There's going to need to be a sacrifice of an innocent lamb in order to cover your sins. And now with that sacrifice, I'm going to make clothing for you. This is what's going to cover you and cover your nakedness. Adam and Eve, when they tried to cover their nakedness on their own, how did they do it? With fig leaves. With something that was super itchy and private places, right? It's not a good look. And that's how they thought they could hide their nakedness. That's how they thought they could hide their sin. But the only way we can hide our sin is through the death of an innocent. So at some point, God must have shown them how to commune with God, how to have that atonement through sacrifice. God, he moves them out of the garden so they don't eat from the tree of life and live forever in a state of sin and a state of broken fellowship with God. Then fast forward there in Genesis chapter 4 verse 1. It tells us, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again this time his brother Abel, and now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the fruit of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. Hebrews 11, it tells us that Abel made his sacrifice in faith, really in faith and in obedience to God and to the way that God had prescribed for them to have their sins covered through the death of an innocent. Cain, he's offering a sacrifice as well. Cain is a religious man, if you would. He's out there making a sacrifice, but it's not the way God had prescribed. Cain is thinking that his own works, the work of his own hands, the sweat of his own brow would be good enough for God to cover his sins. And this is the danger. There is a self-righteousness in Cain. There was a pride in Cain that thought, I could do this my way. I don't have to follow God. I could just do this my way. So now God, he respects Abel and his offering of faith and obedience, which is according to the way that God had prescribed. God, he does not respect Cain and his offering because Cain was self-righteous and not obedient to what God had prescribed. So what happens in verse 5? Cain, he becomes very angry. Then his countenance falls, so the Lord, he warns Cain. God himself comes to Cain and says, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Again, I'm sure Cain could have come to his brother and said, hey, I'll trade you a wheelbarrow of fruits and vegetables and just give me one lamb. I want to be obedient to God. I want to be obedient to what he said. But instead, he allows his envy, his jealousy, his anger to continue to rise up within him. And there in verse 8, it says, Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and he killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Again, family, we are not to love like Cain. We read the story and we think, duh, of course not, right? I shouldn't show love by murdering my own brother. But we have to be careful. Cain and Abel, they were brothers from the most perfect DNA that has ever existed, right? Adam, a perfect man. Eve, she's taken from his rib. Now they produce the first two kids. And there's no one else in the world it can't be like, ah, Cain, he was, he was with that, that bad group of friends, right? Bad group of friends, it corrupts him. There's nobody else around. It's not because Abel was listening to classical music and was into sewing with his mom, right? And Cain, he's out there listening to hardcore rock and he's out there doing a bunch of terrible things. No. Two brothers, same parents, no one else is around. But the pride within Cain's heart 
proved that he was of the evil one because his deeds were evil, which was proof of him being of the evil one. Again, we have to be careful, family, because this can rise up within our own heart. When we come to God, are we being obedient to his word? Are we making up our own rules and our own regulations? Saying, hey, this is good enough. I am good enough to do things my way and come to God the way I want to. Or are we like Abel saying, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I'll be obedient to you. So we shouldn't be loving like that. We're going to see that Cain, he's a type of this world. He goes into 1 John 3 verse 13. He says, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Again, just like Cain hated his brother Abel, we should now not be surprised if the world hates you. That's literally what he's saying. John is telling us, hey, stop being surprised. Right? Anybody here still get surprised when the world hates them? Right? Just me? This teaching is just for me. It's all good, right? Yesterday I was reading a list, right? Of potential terrorist threats to our nation. Having religious holidays? So now on Christmas, I guess I'm part of the terrorist organizations within our United States of America, right? That surprised me. I sent it to some of my pastor friends. I go, did you see this? No, but this is to be expected. I go, oh, you're right. And then I studied this and I said, okay, Lord, you're right. Again, we should not be surprised if the world hates you. Family, have you gone through that? Has the world hated you because of your stance on sin? Because of your stance on marriage? Your stance on sex? Your stance on gender? Have you dealt with any of that yet, or are you just trying to sail on by? Are you trying to hide in the shadows and not stand up for righteousness? That's a great question for us. And why should we not be surprised? What did the nation of Israel do to their own prophets? The prophets that God had sent to warn them. They persecuted them and they killed them. What did they do to Jesus, the Son of God? They persecuted and they killed him. What did they do to the disciples who went around healing people, feeding the hungry, being there for the fatherless, for the widow? What did they do to them? They persecuted them and they killed them. We have to stop being surprised when this happens. And family, this will happen. This is in the process of happening right now, not just in our world, but very soon within our own nation, within our own city. Acts chapter 7, verse 52, Stephen, he's talking to the Pharisees and he says, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Every single one was persecuted and put to death. Why should we be surprised? And why does the world, why do they do this? John chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus gives us the answer why. Jesus says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil that's why they should hate us because we should have so much of jesus living in us that when we want to be obedient to god's word when we're not willing to bow down to idols they get angry because they're able to see their sin and their lack of righteousness their lack of fellowship with god just like the reason why abel was killed by cain was because cain became infuriated that his brother was right with god And he was not. And it pointed out his own errors. It pointed out his own sin. And so often, what do we do? Instead of dealing with our sin, dealing with what we're doing wrong, what do we, what what is the thing that we'd rather do? Is just kill the messenger, right? Why do we say snitches get stitches, right? Why do we say that? It's not, hey, wow, the snitch, the snitched on me. I should be convicted. I should do things right. No, I'm going to kill the messenger. That's what I'm going to do, right? Stop calling me out when I'm doing things wrong. And that's what happens within us. It doesn't have to do with us. It has to do with the Jesus living inside of us. The more we become one with Jesus, the more we're going to look like him. The more like Philippians 3, right? We're going to have to endure and be in those sufferings, right? The fellowship of his sufferings. Do we just want the resurrection without death? It's impossible. We have to know both. And the only way we're going to know that is if we're really with him. A.R. Fowl said, he says, The world feels its bad works without words or speech reproved by our good works. By just living righteously. They sense their bad works being reproved. Right? You go out to uh, 
a party with some of your coworkers and everybody's passing out drinks, everybody's getting hammered. They ask you, hey, you want a drink? And you just say no. Why not, man? You're a holy roller. You're better than me? No, I just don't want to drink. That's all, right? But they get angry. They get infuriated. They're passing around pornographic pictures at the barbershop. I don't want to look at that, man. Oh, you think you're better than us, right? What's going on with you, right? And there's the hatred there. In John 15, we should turn there. It tells us Jesus, he's warning us. And Jesus tells us, again, the world is going to hate us. The world's going to hate us. Don't be surprised if the world hates you. We'll see later on. We should be surprised when the world loves us. That means we are of the world. If we have non-believers who are constantly living in sin and they love spending time with us, they love that we laugh at their jokes and we spend time with them, that's when we should be shocked and alarmed. John chapter 15, verse 18 and 19, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Again, they persecuted Jesus. He fed the multitudes out of his own pocket, out of his own power. It wasn't even that he was a hypocrite. They could look at his mansions, right, or his yachts or his planes and say, ah, he's just into this for the money. He didn't have a place to lay his head. And yet the same crowd that was yelling out, Hosanna, come save us, what were they yelling out a few days later? Crucify him. Put him to death. Right? They went on to say, let his blood be upon us and our children and our children's children. This was a perfect man who had never sinned, and they persecuted him. How much more we, imperfect people that make mistakes, are we going to be persecuted by this world? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14 through 16, Peter, he, warned, he warns this church. He says, for you also suffered the same thing from your own countrymen. Just as they did from the Judeans, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets. And they've persecuted us, and they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. Again, family, we need to stop being surprised that the world hates us. When should we be surprised? When should we be shocked? When the world loves us. When unbelievers love spending time with us and hanging out with us. That's when alarms should be going off. Right? Parents, have you ever thought, man, my, my son, my daughter, all their friends around them are just terrible kids, right? They're terrible kids, right? They're not walking with the Lord. They're terrible kids. Warning signs should be going off in your mind as a parent. Because if your son or daughter is really living in the light and living for Jesus... The world is going to hate them. Those kids are either going to be changing their ways or they're not going to be bringing him down or they're going to hate him and not want to be with him. So often we're quick to blame all the other kids, right? It's all the other parents, all the other kids. My niño lindo, he's perfect, right? They would never do anything, right? We have to be careful with that. If our sons and daughters, all their friends are unbelievers and they love spending time with our son or daughter, warning signs should be going off. Same thing for us at work. If all the most... Sinful people are the people that love to hang out. Hey, come, come with us, come with us. Got to be careful with that. The second thing that should surprise us is if there's hatred between the brethren. Because that's not what's normal. That's what John is telling us here. That what is normal is for there to be love between the brothers and sisters of Christ. When there's hatred, that's when there should be a warning to us. Verse 14, he's going to begin to speak on the assurance we have the trust we can have that we are saved. Verse 14, 1 John 3 says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Again, we can have assurance to the fact of our salvation. The question is, do we love the body of Christ? Do we love being around other believers? Again, the hope, the knowledge that we can have that we've passed from death to life. We can have this assurance that we've gone from being sons and daughters of the devil 
to sons and daughters of God if we have a love for the body of Christ. Right? Some of the people, when you first started coming to church, some people, they came with question marks, right? Some of the guys, they came to beat up the pastors. That was their first time coming to church, right? And now some of them, they're the ushers, they're the security team, making sure other people don't beat us up, right? It's funny how the Lord does that. Some of you, right, you think, ah, that's the last place I want to be on a Sunday is at church. I remember hearing one person's testimony. It's awesome to hear, right? And their marriage wasn't doing well. They're going on a couple's retreat. They're having one-on-one counseling with the pastor. And, Pastor, I got to leave early in the couple's retreat. I got to make the Dolphins game on Sunday. So I know my, my marriage is on the rocks, but I got to make the Dolphins game, right? And that, that change that should happen in our hearts. Or now we say, man, I, I can't wait to be at church on Sunday. I'm on vacation. I can't wait to visit another church and see what the Lord is doing there. Do we have that genuine love for one another? Because if we do, then we can have the assurance that we've passed from death to life. Colossians chapter 1, you could turn there if you'd like. Here Paul, he goes into depths of what does it mean, right, that we've been taken from darkness into light. Colossians chapter 1, verse 12 through 14. It says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness. And now he's conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Again, family, when we're living in our sins, we are dead to God. We're separated from God right now and for all of eternity. But the moment we accept him, we believe in him as our Lord and Savior, now we're adopted into the family of God and now we have eternal life. Now we get to be together. We get to be joined with him in death and in resurrection. But the way that we can have this assurance, this trust that we really have passed from death to life is if we have a love for the brethren. A.R. Faust said, he says, love on our part is the evidence of our justification and regeneration. It's not the cause of them. Again, how do we know the Lord has changed our hearts? Because we don't look at Christians the way we looked at before we got saved. We don't look at church the same way before we got saved. Now we see it in a new light. Now there's hope, there's joy, there's gladness when we come into church. David Guzik, he says, this speaks to our pursuit of fellowship. If we love the brethren, we will want to be with them, right? What a concept. If we love them, we'll actually want to be with them. And even if we have been battered and bruised by unloving brethren, there will still be something in us drawing us back to the fellowship with the brethren we love. Family, do you love to be with with God's people? Or is that sort of like the last place you want to be, right? You get here right at the last song and you leave right before we let out because you don't want to have to talk to anyone, deal with anyone, right? There's no true love there. Right? Those watching online, if you're still not attending a church since COVID started, right, there's something wrong there. That's not, it's showing that there's not a love for the body of Christ, right? How many husbands and wives, they've been separated from each other since COVID started, right? Honey, I love you so much. We got to be separate during this COVID thing, Right? I don't want to go down, so I'm going to buy a house in Key Largo. I'll hang out there. You stay in Miami, and we'll video chat from time to time, right? We could go on Zoom and hang out together, but we got to stay quarantined from each other. It's not safe, right? There's no love there. If you really love someone, you want to be with them. You can't wait to be with them. We see that in the youth and in the young adults, right? Some of you parents, you have a youth, and they're with their friends on Sunday, then they're with their friends on Wednesday, and they're with their friends on Friday, right? And they say, Mom, Dad, when can I hang out with my friends? I haven't seen them in such a long time. You're going to see them in two days. What are you talking about, right? And they have a love for one another, a love for the fellowship with one another. We have to be careful that we're not shooing away that fellowship of the brethren. Charles Spurgeon, he says, do you love them for Christ's sake? Do you say to yourself, that is one of Christ's people. That is one who bears Christ's cross That is one of the children of God. Therefore, I will love him and I will take delight in his company. Then that is an evidence that you are not of the world. Again, family, the world, it's going to hate believers. It's going to hate Christians. They hated Jesus. They hated the prophets. 
But if there's a love for other believers within us, then we know, okay, I can trust that the Lord has done that work within my heart. Verse 15, now he shows us the opposite side, right? There's evidence to point that we are a son or daughter of God, that regeneration has happened in our hearts. But now there's also evidence showing that we are not a believer and that we're a son of the devil. Verse 15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We go to Matthew chapter 5, and we see here that God, he, just, he does not just look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what's going on in our heart, the true desires of our heart, the lust, the thing that we're craving. Some of us, we come to church just on Sundays, so our parents think that we're right with God, but the whole time we're thinking, when is this guy going to shut up, right? When can I leave? When can I get out of here? The rest of the week, we're listening to the same worldly music, hanging out with unbelievers. Our mouth is a cesspool. And that's revealing your heart really is not with God. You're just putting on an act for your mom or dad or for another person here. And we're not the one that control your eternal life. God does, and God sees your heart. God sees your mindset right now while, at your ch- while you're at church and the desires of your heart. So in Matthew 5, Jesus, he gives us greater insight to this. And in Matthew 5, verse 21, he tells us, You have heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. As some of us, we read this and we feel better about ourselves. I've never said rakat to anybody, right? <laughs> I never even knew that was a word. What's going on here? I'm safe. I'm going to heaven. No, William Barclay, he says, commentators have translated the idea between raka as you nitwit, you blockhead, you numbskull, you bonehead, you brainless idiot. But raka is an almost untranslatable word because it describes the tone of our voice more than anything else. Its whole accent is the accent of contempt. It is the word of one who despises another with arrogant contempt. And I know we've never gone to church and despised another believer, right? We look at someone else serving and we say, ah, I remember what you did to me, right? You're there serving, trying to put on your best act, but I remember what you did to me. And we despise them. We see them serving and we say, ah, I could serve a thousand times better than you. But they, something's happening, I can't do it right now. But I can serve a thousand times better than you, right? And there's contempt within our heart. We have to be careful that that anger, that arrogance, that contempt, it's showing that there's evidence that maybe you're a Cain and not an Abel. If there's envy in your heart towards another believer, if there's strife in your heart towards another believer, if there's jealousy and hatred, if you're jealous with their relationship with God and how God's using them, You're a Cain. You're not an Abel. And that's where we need to be careful that, Lord, where are you showing in me the parts of my life that are a Cain? Where are the parts in me that I would rather that person be gone from this church or be gone from life itself? Lord, show that within me. Charles Spurgeon, he says, every man who hates another has the venom of murder in his veins. He may never actually take the deadly weapons into his hand and destroy his life. But if he wishes that his brother were out of the way, if he would be glad if no such person existed, that feeling amounts to murder in the judgment of God. Right? I hope none of you here, you started coming to the 11 o'clock service because you were so angry at someone at the 9 o'clock, right? I hope there's no one here. I hope this isn't like your fourth church and every other church, everybody hates you and you don't know why and that's why you're here, right? We got to be careful within our own hearts, Lord, what's, what's up with me? What's wrong with me? Do we have hatred towards someone else in the body of Christ? Is being with the body of believers the last place we want to be? Then, friend, I don't know if you want to be in heaven or not. You're going to be surrounded with us for all of eternity. We're going to be living in the same place for all of eternity. If you have contempt and hatred now for believers and God and his humor, that's probably exactly who you're going to be living next to in all of heaven, right? Again, we have to be careful. Do we despise someone else in the body of Christ with contempt? then there's evidence that we don't have eternal life abiding in us. 
But instead, what does it tell us? We have spiritual death abiding in us, which leads to eternal death. Again, John, he's given us these tests all throughout 1 John. David Guzik, he puts them simple for us to understand, right? He says there's a truth test, there's the love test, and there's the moral test. The truth test is do we believe in what the Bible teaches as true? That the Bible is the word of God. And so much of and being an intellectual today is questioning God's word. And where did it come from? Who wrote this? We have to be careful with that. Do we pass the love test? Do we have love towards one another? Do people look at us and say, you know, you have a special type of love. You forgive me even though I've hurt you. I've sinned, I've fallen short, and yet you love me the same way. Do we pass that test? I know within my own testimony, that was a big part of it. People in the church loving me even though I wasn't doing well with the Lord. They were not aiding and abiding and abating my sin, right? They weren't helping me sin. They weren't going out and helping me do it, but they wouldn't sit me down and question every single thing that I've ever done in my life. Those people loving me, it caused me, it convicted me to get right with the Lord. And finally, the moral test. Are we becoming more and more like Jesus? Are we looking more and more like him? Are we being more and more obedient, more and more convicted by the word of God? If so, then our claim to be a Christian can be proven true. And family, how do we pass these tests, these three tests? Do you believe God's word is true? Do you obey God's word? And do you love God's people? Verse 16, now we get the true definition of love, the biblical definition of love. It tells us, by this we know love. We can truly know love. That word, gnosko, right? But he, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Again, how can we know what true love is? How can we know the definition of love? It's by looking at Jesus and what he's done for us. Again, we have to be so careful with this world and it's redefining of words and terms. It's changing things. It's changing what love is. We have to be careful within our own heart that we're not taking love by what our parents said it meant or what our grandparents say it means or what our friends say it means. Like, what does love mean to a couple of middle schoolers, right? It's a boy and a girl, and they look at each other and say, I like you. I like you too. Now, they don't do anything else, right? That's all they do, right? They hold hands, and now they're in love, right? We love one another, right? I have to be careful. I think for the couple's retreat, I think it's a spoiler alert, but they're going to make a video, right, with some kids, and what's your definition of love? What do mom and dad do to show love to each other? So my kids said the way that I show love to Amanda is by making her coffee. That's, that's how I show her love, right? That's how data shows love to Amanda. I have to be careful because now my kids walk into a Starbucks, they're going to think everybody there loves them, right? <laughs> they go to a La Carreta. Ah, these people, they love us. They're here making us coffee. Dad's paying. We got to be careful with that. Again, we have to be careful that we are not taking the world's definition of love or even our own family's definition of love. What does God's word say? Back in John 15, I know we've turned there a lot this morning, this afternoon. In John 15, Jesus tells us, he gives us the greatest, the pinnacle of what love truly is. He tells us in verse 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. This is the true definition of love. This is the epitome of what love is. Love is not simply a feeling because feelings come and go. But instead love is a decision. Love is a choice. Love is an action. It's an expression. Love is willing to sacrifice ourselves for the betterment of someone else. That's what true love is. Someone's pressuring you to give up on certain morals, certain hopes. Someone's pressuring you to have sex or sexual intimacy before marriage. That's not what love is. They're not willing to sacrifice for your betterment. They're wanting you to sacrifice for their own betterment. Again, Blue Letter Bible agrees, right? So we have to be careful with that. Again, love, what does it truly mean? It's us willing to sacrifice for the betterment of someone else. Romans 5 verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us. 
and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, family, Jesus laid down his own life, and here in 1 John it tells us even his very own soul for us, that we would have life before we were even family with him. We had nothing in common with him. Instead, we were his enemy, and he was willing to die for us. That's the love that Jesus had for us. We had nothing in common, and yet he was willing to give up everything for us. Right? Some of us, we may think, hey, I'm willing to lay down my life for my spouse, for my kids, maybe my best friend. But you have something in common with them. You spent time together. You've loved one another. Would you do it for someone you had nothing in common with? He's the creator. We were simply the creation that turned our back on him. And he said, I'm going to die for them. Right? Jeremiah, Isaiah, it, it looks at God and it says, he's the potter and we are just the clay. And yet the potter was willing to die for clay. He was perfect. He is perfect. And yet we were broken. He is sinless and we were sinful. He was selfless and we were so selfish. And yet he was willing to die for us. And again, that's convicting enough, but wait, it gets more, it gets better, right? What does it tell us? In this same manner of love that God has had towards us, what should we do? Now we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. God was willing to do it for us while we were enemies. How much more should we be willing to do it for our own brothers and sisters in the Lord? We should be willing to do that. And some of us, we want to lay down our lives for the brethren. And I think it's mostly guys. I haven't heard too many ladies think of this, right? They want to do it in like a blaze of glory, right? You want to push Pastor Raz out of the way and take a bullet for him, right? And say a cool one-liner and then you die and then we name the parking lot after you. And your family's famous in Calvary Chapel, Miami for all of eternity, right? And think, That's how I'm going to lay down my life for the brethren, right? That would be the easy road, right? The hard road, the true road is that we need to be sacrificing our lives for others day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. When they annoy us and when they bother us, that's the time to still love on them. When we see them making boneheaded decisions, that's the time to still love on them. You go to Philippians chapter 2, and here Paul, he gives us the mindset that we should have as Christians, as those who are heaven-bound, as those who are sons and daughters of God. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. He tells us, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy. By being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each one esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Again, this is what love looks like. It's not just putting my comforts at the top of the list. It's putting the comforts of others before my own. The interests of others before my own. Day in and day out. It's like a slow, painful death, right? And yet it's a slow, painful death to our flesh. Our spirit continues to enjoy it. Our spirit continues to be blessed by it. And there we know that we've gone from death to life. When we enjoy our flesh being put to death and the spirit of God growing within us, that joy can only be found in a believer, right? There's no way a non-believer would ever find that enjoyable. We need to give of ourselves to one another, A.R. Fawcett, he says, it's giving of our time, it's giving of our care, giving of our own labor, our own prayers, and our own substance for one another. Our life ought not to be dearer to us than to God's, than to God's own son was to him. The apostles and the martyrs, they acted on this principle. Family, how much do we hold on to our own lives? How much do we hold on to our own comforts, our own dreams, our own hopes, our own aspirations that we're willing to push away other Christians? We're willing to use other Christians as a stepping stone, right, to get to the place that we want to get to. 
Or you say, I'm too busy to talk to anybody after church. I just got to run. One day I get that. Mother's Day, I get that. But every single Sunday, every single Wednesday, there's just no time to be with the family of Christ. Then what family are you a part of, right? If your son or daughter gets home and says, Mom, Dad, I got no time for you. I'm just going to go straight to my room. Every single day, I hope you have a conversation with them, right? This isn't a hotel, right? That was at least what I was told when I was a, when I was a kid, right? Again, that's the mindset we should have for the body of Christ. We're not in here, I got the teaching and get out. All these people in here, they're obnoxious. I just want to get in and out, right? No. We should have a love for one another, willing to give up of our own goods for one another. Verse 17 and 18, how do we do this practically? But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. I love uh, Jim Gallagher. He put this in a great way in a, in a church service. He says, how many of you guys are hungry? Anybody hungry here? A handful of us, right? Be filled. <laughs> like, feel any better? Or how about, I'm going to pray for you that God fills you up right now, right? I'm going to pray for you, right? It does nothing. And so often as believers, that's what we do towards one another. We see someone crying, someone broken, and we don't even have the heart to actually even pray for them right then and there. We say, I'll pray for you when I get home, right? Again, there's just no love. There's no care there. We have to be careful because many of us can fall prey to this. Many of us, we come into church and we're only looking out for our own interests. Where will I be comfortable? What can the church do for me? And it's all about me, me, me. That's not the way, that's not the mindset we should have. We should be looking out for others' interests over our own. And then in verse 17 and 18, he makes this very simple for us. He's telling us, if you currently have this world's goods, you have shelter, you have clothing, you have food, maybe you have peace with God, you have joy right now, you have hope right now, and now you see a brother or sister in need, not just one day, not just one service, but for days and weeks at a time, you see that one brother, that one sister that looks really down all the time, looks super sad all the time. And now your heart comes up showing compassion. And instead of acting on that compassion, you instead shut it up and shut it down. How in the world can we say we have God's love residing inside of us? We're supposed to be willing to die for one another. And yet we're not willing to sit down and have a conversation with another believer. If we're not willing to give up of our own possessions, our own finances, and yet we say, of course I'm a Christian, of course I'm a believer, isn't that a bit hypocritical? Right? Going through my devils, you see Jesus, he's going through the death of John the Baptist, his own cousin, he's trying to go away on his own, and yet the multitudes follow him, and what did he say? I need a me day, right? I've had a rough time, guys, I'm going through some things. He says, no, he had compassion on them. He begins to speak to them, work with them, heal them, miracles, feed them. Again, that's the mindset we should have towards one another. Right? Maybe you're here and you have tons of friends at church, right? You're the most popular person here at church. There's some people that they come to church and they have no one else. There's no family back at home backing them up. There's no friendships that they can go and turn to. And they come to church hoping that someone would talk with them. That someone would be willing to sit down with them and have a conversation with them. And what do we say? Ah, I'm too busy. i got to go hang out with all my friends, right? I don't have time for this new person. I don't have time for this person that's always by themselves. Why are they always by themselves at church? What's wrong with them? And we go off. That's not a heart of love. That's not a heart of love towards one another. So again, practically, with our own goods, our own shelter, our own clothing, our own food, are we willing to give towards other believers? In Luke 10, we don't have time, but there we get the story, right? Of the Samaritan. There's one man, he's trying to justify himself in front of Jesus. Jesus says, hey, you have to love your neighbor as yourself. You got to love your neighbor the way I loved you, so you got to love. So he says, so who's my neighbor then, right? I'm going to move off to a private island so I don't have to love anybody, right? That's what I'm going to do. That's basically what the guy's saying. So Jesus, he gives them a story, which probably actually happened. He says, there's a certain man, he's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. He gets jumped. They strip him. They beat him up. They wound him, and they leave him half dead. And then all of a sudden, who comes? First, a priest comes down the road. He sees him. He goes to the other side and keeps walking. Then there's a Levite. He goes, he looks at him, and now he passes to the other side. 
But a certain Samaritan, as he saw him, he sees him, and then he has compassion on the guy. He doesn't just pray for him. He doesn't just help him along the road so he doesn't get jumped again. No, he goes to him and he bandaged his wounds. He poured out his own oil, his own wine on him. He put his own schedule on hold. He puts him on his own animal. Now he takes him to the next innkeeper. He says, hey, take care of him. And whatever you're going to spend, I'm going to come back and repay you. Here's the money to take care of him. That's the way that we are to love. That's the way we are to love one another. Jesus ends it in verse 37. He says, he who showed mercy on him is what the other guy replies. And then Jesus says to him, go and do likewise. Family, when was the last time you showed mercy on someone else? You had compassion on someone else. You saw another believer in a worse state that you're in. And you say, you know what? I got to show them some mercy. I got to show them some compassion. After seeing all the mercy and compassion that God has given to me, that the church has given to me, how can I not extend mercy and compassion on this other brother or sister in the Lord? Family, we need to be willing to look out and see those who need mercy and compassion. We need to be willing to take out of our own time, our own finances, to help those who need mercy and compassion. All right, we live in a day and age where people don't like making eye contact. You make eye contact with people and they like think you're weird all of a sudden, right? Sometimes you have conversations with people and they're, they're just like this the whole time, right? They, just, they can't look into your eyes. And sometimes we do that because we don't want to see if someone's really in need or we don't want them to see how much in need we are, right? How broken we really are, how destitute we really are. We need someone to know it, but in our own pride, we just keep our head down and we just fly in and out of church without anyone noticing. Let's look to one another. Adam Clark, he says, here is a test of this love. If we do not divide our bread with the hungry, we certainly would not lay down our life for him. Whatever love we may pretend to have towards mankind, if we are not charitable, if we are not benevolent, then we give the lie to our profession. Again, family, we have to be kind towards one another. And it starts off, where does that practice start up? Within the, our own home. Within the family of Christ, that's where that love needs to start and grow and mature. And it just doesn't just stay there. We're not just like a private club where we love us four no more. That's not what it's about. It's loving the body of Christ so then we can love the unbelievers. Not by the way the unbelievers say we're supposed to love them. But by the way God's word says we're supposed to love them. And then Jesus says we're supposed to love our enemies. Right? That's the depth that we need to continue to grow in as believers but again how do we do with these tests family if we're doing well on these tests then we have assurance lord i'm going to see you one day right earlier in first john we know if we have that hope it purifies us jesus is coming back at any moment are you ready right parents are you ready are your kids ready for us as parents can i honestly say my kids are ready for jesus to come right now my kids, for those of you that your kids are going into college, are your kids ready to withstand the onslaught of the enemy to take their minds and take their souls? Are, are your kids ready for that? Have you prepared them for that? Are you saying, eh, I hope, I hope it works, right? I hope everything that George did stuck. No, that's not the right way to look at it. Are we ready? Are we passing that moral test? Are we passing that love test, right? Are we passing the test that God's word is true? Are you going home and you're telling your wife, your sons, your daughters, your family, your friends, I can't do that because this is what God's word says. And God's word is true. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the only one to heaven. And I love him so much, I have to be obedient to him. 